Today on episode number 392 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Norlin Hernandez joins me to talk about identity, belonging, and Hispanic Latin American culture. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Norlin Hernandez is a proud Nika, Nicoya, terms used to describe someone with Nicaraguan roots. He's the proud father to Ayea Mia and a husband to Isabel. His previous roles include leading a corporate training department that served an international audience. He's also led a team of higher education professionals who pioneered institutional efforts to create a infrastructure to support fully online undergraduate and graduate students. He's the founder and president of Faithful Teachings, a nonprofit organization that aims to create educational resources for church leaders in Latin America. As the director of the Jesse Miranda Center for Hispanic Leadership at Vanguard University, Norlin works internally with administrators, faculty, and staff to support student success and strengthen Vanguard University's Hispanic-serving initiatives. He's a Ph.D. candidate in intercultural studies from Biola's Cook School of Intercultural Studies. His research interests include Latin American identity, theology, contextualization, leadership, justice, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. In his free time, Norlin enjoys exercising, spending time outdoors, reading, watching movies and documentaries, and leading his nonprofit. Norlin, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie. It's such a pleasure, and I really appreciate the invitation. I have been looking forward to this conversation ever since we booked it, and we get to have a little history lesson, but a history lesson in your life. Would you tell us about your experience in community college? Absolutely. It's one of those interesting things because as a first-generation college student, and you don't realize you're one unless you're told one, right? Unless you're told You are a first-generation college student, and that comes with X, Y, Z complexities. So as I was navigating community college, I did not understand that I was a first-generation college student, and I did not understand the various challenges that came with that. And the, the interesting thing really is that one of those challenges was just seeing myself represented in the faculty, in the leadership, that then caused either for me to feel accepted, comfortable, feel advocated for or the opposite. And I recall one particular experience. And I think this was one of the, those odd experiences that really cemented my, my experience in college and really almost the trajectory of how I uh, pursued my academic uh, endeavors. I recall being in a political science course. And the first day this professor comes in, in shorts, And he has tattoos all over the place. He's a Latino, comes in on his bike, and he's riding his bike through the hall. And one of the first things that he says is, let me 
clear the air before anything starts. And he starts talking honestly and transparently about his life and the challenges that he faced being in the army, having addictions, pursuing uh, higher ed, the implications of that, the journey that he went through even to get a PhD that was not planned, but ultimately he had the, cap- the capacities and the capabilities and all the struggles, even mentioning being married five times and the failures of the previous marriages and how he understood all of that. And there you have before you this man who is a PhD, who is teaching. And then as he articulated, of course, the remainder of the class, you begin to have this connection with him beyond just the academic. And of course, I saw him and I said, wow, he has the talents, the capacities. He has this thing about him being a professor, but he looks like me. And then when he said, and he always reiterated this, if I can do this, and again, he named all of those challenges, then you can too. Mm. And I remember that, strike uh, you know just being so impactful in my perception of myself in my experience because i have to say this i had a 4.0 in high school and i don't recall any counselor telling me hey you should apply to college and i didn't apply to any colleges any universities and therefore i ended up being at the community college and later on of course acknowledging wow what a missed opportunity so that first generation college student experience truly was fundamental in in my experience. And now in looking back and how I look at the future and I look at my role as part of the director of the Jesse Miranda Center, my own academics, my own journey and my own passions. When you talk about the missed opportunity, because you you had such a good experience, you know, in in term, at least in this class at community college, what can you tell us more about what that means to you? What what was missed by going straight to a community college? And I suppose maybe even what was gained? Absolutely. And such a great question, Bunny. And by this, I, I want to be clear, I don't mean that they are less than, the community colleges are less than, or that they don't provide the same caliber or the resources that one needs. What I really truly mean is that as someone who had the capacity and had the grades to pursue anything, to have options. The missed opportunity for me was that. It's to have options that then I choose for myself where I attend, rather than saying, well, now I missed the deadline for these universities and I have to pursue something locally. And that's that's part of a missed opportunity for me because I would have loved to experience something different. I would have loved to have options and say to my mom, mom, I got accepted to X, Y, Z institutions. I didn't have that. And that that's that for me was is the missed opportunity. And talk a little bit about uh, any mentors that you had that took on maybe even a more formal role than that first bike riding tattooed (laughs) short wearing (laughs) shorts wearing uh, professor that you were so surprised by. Yes, absolutely. When I think about mentors, it's really, it's a really tricky question because I didn't have someone that formally said, I will be your mentor or that I formally said, Hey, can you be my mentor? However, there were people, there were men in my lives that played a critical role in making decisions. One of them was my Bible school teacher. So while I was doing my undergraduate degree at the community college, and when I transferred over to Cal State LA, I was also pursuing a Bible Institute degree. And one of the men there, one of the professors I still keep in touch with, he's still very much an advisor, was this role model of a figure for me. 
And I have to say this in order, I have to provide some context for that to make sense. I didn't grow up with my father truly in, in, in the picture. At 15, my parents divorced. But even prior to that, emotionally speaking, he wasn't necessarily available. He was there available for other things such as finances, providing. But to say that he went to a basketball game, to say that he gave me life lessons, to say that he said, I loved you or cemented my emotional intelligence in that way, I can't say that. But this man that I came across at Bible Institute, I saw him as this role model because I saw the way that he treated his wife, the way that he was with his family, the values that he upheld. And in addition to that, I also saw that he was pursuing his own degrees, his own academic goals. And that was truly inspiring for me because as I was pursuing my own, I often came to him for advice, advice on what to do, what to take on some of the challenges that I was facing in school, some of the, the decisions, important decisions that I need to, needed to make, such as majors. I, I switched from one major to the next until I finally landed on one. And at a very personal level, he was able to connect me. He was a, a Latino as well, Spanish-speaking professor, which resonated with me, which he understood my culture. So we, all, we bypassed a lot of those uh, often uh, conversations that we have to have to contextualize decisions or contextualize the way that we think. So that, that was truly helpful for me. A Latino who's a father, who's a husband, who is a Bible school institute, uh, a, a Bible school teacher. And in addition to that, who's also pursuing a PhD, a demon actually at, at, at his level. So that to me was a mentor and is a mentor of mine. When I first began today's episode, I shared your name, but I know that you have more that you could share about it. Would you talk about your name a little bit and, and some of the ways it connects with your identity and also with your family? Absolutely. So, so many of these things uh, are funny and joy and humor is part of my culture. You go to Nicaragua, you will not get past one day or half a day without running across someone telling a joke or running across somebody really just uh, bringing some humor into your life. And I say that because, for example, my last name, Hernandez, it took a long time in my identity development journey to truly lean into articulating my name in that way, Hernandez, or even my, my first name, Norlan. I often decided to go the easier route, whatever was easiest for whatever context I was found myself in, Norlin, or I often said my, my, my middle name, Josue. But Hernandez, uh, the funny story here is that my wife's maiden name is also Hernandez. Now, because of where we find, found ourselves in this journey, this identity development journey, I understood my cultural ethnic roots a lot uh, more deeply than she had. She's a third generation, you know, Mexican-American, and I am a first generation uh, Nicaraguense american so I, I am deeply tied to my culture, to Nicaragua, to this country, to my family. And therefore, I had a lot of things that I, that I have a lot of things that come with it. Even the tilde, right, in the letter A, that little apostrophe in the letter A. I told my wife that when we married, even though we had the same last name, that she was going to have my last name, which was to include the tilde every time that she would write it. And that shows you the depth of my understanding and my commitment to my last name, to Hernandez, to my culture, what that truly means for my family as well. And the other thing was uh, my first name, Norlan. When I asked my mom about this, because 
as you can imagine, Norlan, why would you name me this and have people have trouble saying my name in middle school, in high school, all across my entire life? So I, I wanted to understand it more. So I told my mom, hey, what, what is the deal with my name? What, uh, why would you name me Norlan? What does it mean? And when I found that out, of course, it, it had more and more meaning for me. It means born in northern lands. Norland, so northern lands, and that that has a lot of uh, meaning for my family because out of the four boys that we are, and I'm the third one, I'm the only one born in the states. Everybody else was born back home in Nicaragua, so that ha- that comes with history. It comes with meaning, and truly, actually, it comes with a responsibility. I feel a responsibility that I feel for my family, for my family's dignity, for my family's honor in all that I do. Now, I find it funny what we remember about stories, because when you told me the story, I did remember it differently. And either you missed, or I don't mean you missed, either you didn't share the part of the story, or I'm just fixating on it. But your (laughs) wife, so does she take your last name exactly as you had intended? Yeah. So in her journey of, uh, you know, deepening her awareness, her ethnic roots, She's coming to grips with ah. what that means. Does she do that and practice it? Not as often as I do. <laughs> See, the little feminist in me, I, maybe she, the feminist in me is a little bit bigger than little. The feminist in me was like, I thought that she like carried her own, you know, sense of identity and independence by not using it. So, but it's not funny how much of that works, Norlin, where it's like we we are really on sort of a journey of our own sense in terms of our, our partnerships and in terms of our identities. And it kind of sometimes depends on exactly when you catch us. Yeah, <laughs> oh, right. I loved, I loved getting to hear that story for a second time. And, and I know a lot of today's conversation really does have to do with identity. A lot of today's conversation has to do with names. I was thinking about Shakespeare, you know, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet and, I know you have to share with us today a little bit about the importance of terminology, not necessarily what we call individuals, but what we call groups of, of people and specifically what we call a particular group of people. So would you bring us into, first off, just talking about the importance of terminology, specifically when talking about people with Latin American roots? Yes. Such an important conversation because of where we are today and where, as we look at history, and I think that's where we truly find the value of this, the value of terminology. We find power dynamics. We find experiences, the use of a particular name and who determined that particular name and for what reasons. All of that truly does contextualize the importance of this. And when we talk about folks that have roots in Latin America, it's important to understand this. One, it's not a monolithic group. When we talk about Latin America, we're talking about so many countries, so many variations, this cultural mosaic, traditions, regional differences, languages, skin color, histories. So therefore, even to attempt to put a terminology that encompasses all of that is problematic. It's problematic to use any term to categorize any group with such diversity. But then again, we understand some of the necessities 
And that's why I think it's important to talk about this because there have been so many different terms and names that have been utilized for various reasons and they continue to morph and shape. But uh, it does influence, I think, and it does impact our engagement with the group, with the person, interpersonally, and just even our own thoughts. So thinking about the Latin American community and terms such as Hispanic, if we look at the history behind this, of course, we, we see how in the U.S., at least, it has been used and it began being used in the 70s through the U.S. Census Bureau to classify a group of people, you know, people from Spain or with Spanish-speaking origins, and how that was utilized to encompass a, such a large, again, such a large, diverse group of people. And at times, we look at this even in law. We look at this in policies. You look at higher ed. Hispanic serving institutions, right? It gives you it gives you an indication of, of the utilization of the term. There's also Latin American or Latina Latino or Latin with with a at sign. And personally speaking, when we when we talk about this, we're we're acknowledging that these that this group of people have a common root, common ancestry to a country in Latin America. And again, to recognize that when we talk about Latin America, it's not all Spanish speaking. You have Brazil in the mix and they speak Portuguese. So we have Latin American, we have Latina and Latino or Latin with the, with the at sign. And I really, I actually like this term as well because of the intentionality of the use of this term, which has gender equity at the forefront, right? You're talking about that feminist in you. Well, this is where it shows up really well, Bonnie, because in, when I utilize this term, I make sure I make such an intentional effort to say Latina and then Latino because it truly is countercultural. The hierarchical structure within most, not all, but most Latin American communities is patriarchal. And I want to challenge that, especially because I have a, five, a beautiful five year old girl and I have a wife and I have a mother. And I want to do whatever I can to bring about this sense of equity, even with the utilization of, of terminology. We move on from Latin American and Latina, Latino to a more common term right now, uh, common meaning it's being popularized a little bit, Latinx. Now, Latinx has this more progressive uh, bent towards gender neutrality. And it's important to note also, even though we see it a lot and we see it in the media, we see it in, in the academy, that recent, uh, recent surveys demonstrate that only about 3% of Hispanic or Latina Latinos use it. And this was a study done by the Pew Research Center. And it's important to understand the utilization of that as well. And this is where we can start seeing truly the variations, the differences, the diversity within this group of people. Because we're not just talking about now a set of group of people that have Latin American roots, but now we're talking about generational differences. We know that second and subsequent generations are picking up English at a faster rate than they are Spanish. And this is important because when we talk about Latin X, well, the letter X in Spanish is X. So it's not really gender neutral. And there's some difficulties in utilizing that term in Spanish. So that in and of itself kind of gives you an indication of who is utilizing it. And, the la and lastly, of course, you have, and this is what I find really interesting. When you go to these countries, you ask them, you ask a Nicaragüense, are, are, are you Latina, Latino, or do you want to be called Hispanic, or, or how do I approach this? 
More often than not, they say, well, I'm Nicaraguense. And this is an approach, is the utilization of their nationality. So you can say Hispanic, you can say Latina, Latino, but there's also, or Latinx, and there's also this opportunity to simply acknowledge the country they're from. Brazilian, Colombian, Cuban, Mexican, Nicaragüense. And at times, and this is where the beautiful thing about the cultural mosaic that we see, it also merges some of these nationalities. So you have, for example, someone that was born in New York with Puerto Rican roots and, you know, the, the term New Yorican. And there are so many variations of this. So that gives you a really brief 3,000 foot level view of the lay of the land in regards to some of the terminology. It's not all of them. And I am by no way saying one approach is better than the other. In fact, there is this thing that I'd, I'd much rather do, which is the approach towards having these kinds of conversations. It's not, don't ask yourself the question, should I use this or that? It's ask what it's my approach to having the conversation. And the approach that I often think about has to do with cultural humility. And the idea of cultural humility that has these two different components, an interpersonal component and this interpersonal component. So the recognition that I don't know everything about everyone. (laughs) And although I see you and I may have assumptions about you and about your culture, about where you come from, I'm not going to lean in that way. And I won't approach the conversation and I won't approach the, the individual based on these assumptions or biases or stereotypes that oftentimes are shaped and formed by our surroundings, politics, media, movies, anything and everything that we become in contact with. The second element of this is the interpersonal, which truly the posture says, I'm a, I want to give you the opportunity. You deserve the opportunity to tell your story. And then based on that, that's how I will approach you. So if I hear you talk about I am Latina, Latino, then I know, okay, you consider yourself a Latina. Let me go that way. And you tell me your story about I am second generation Mexican-American. All right, great. What does that mean? So they self-define. And that's that right there, the approach that I think is, is most fitting and most equitable and most just is really that. It's approaching the individual and allowing them to have that, that ability. Because historically, and we see this with the first term Hispanic, historically, the Latina, Latino, Hispanic community didn't have a say in the terminology and the naming, and therefore lost agency in who and how they are represented and how the terms would be utilized. Mm. Yeah, I'm hearing two two themes from you, both is that this is so tied up with people's identity and wanting to honor all people in the ways that they get to show up in the spaces that we might be facilitating learning in. And then the second thing I heard you say earlier is that we need to be also recognizing that some of this quote unquote work has already been done in the sense of so many of us now are teaching at institutions that are designated as Hispanic serving institutions and the importance of having those conversations. I know for us, just even it, the work is never done there, right? So so recognizing to name it, this is problematic. This, this wording, this naming, this class may not resonate with you. And it also can really 
bring down to bear the need to be having conversations who don't feel included because they are, in fact, not any one of those categorizations. And sometimes the misunderstandings and the ignorance that can occur therein, which can just exasperate challenges as well for us to be really honoring each other's cultures and identities and those kinds of things. So the I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how, so I think specifically in a classroom context and in a college campus, uh, the kind of community we want to build, what more f- ways we might be able to facilitate these kinds of conversations just to be bringing to light to name the problems inherent anytime you try to create classifications, yet recognizing their very presence, you know, human brains, they <laughs> they, they do t- tend to classify things and we classify colleges and universities as R1, that kind of thing. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, all of this sort of messiness of and importance of having these conversations, class after class, community after community. Absolutely. It's such an important thing to think intentionally about as a Hispanic serving institution. And that's often like a statement that we hear. It's, are you Hispanic enrolling? Is that really what you are as an institution or are you Hispanic serving, which means also Hispanic graduating, right? Graduation, persistence, time to degree comparisons, these kinds of things that are intentionally thought about as an institution to truly serve the community. So conversations like these are truly important because one, as an institution, it demonstrates a commitment, of course, it demonstrates a responsibility and also provides accountability. Because again, we are HSI and we need to define what that means and who we're serving and how we're serving them. Secondly, I think, as I think about the experience uh, and talking about the responsibility and the accountability of having these conversations, it truly does need to go beyond conversations. Because as we come to understand as faculty, as administrators, as leaders, as staff members of a particular university, and we come across this conversation, it needs to do something. It's not simply for the sake of learning and understanding, but truly for the sake of transforming how we approach our task. And here's where the challenge is, right? That when we are confronted with that, then we we need to truly think about our, our pedagogical sensitivity, if we're talking explicitly about the classroom. How then do we bring, for example, a justice-based pedagogy, which justice and equity are very much a part of, and resistance are very much a part of the culture, of the experiences? So when we talk about justice-based pedagogy, we mean things like, well, let's take a look around our context, our society, and what kind of social issues our students are facing. For example, if we're we're talking explicitly about Latina, Latino students, what kind of social issues are our Latina, Latino students facing, those who are in our class, and how does that affect their experience? How does that affect their performance? And how are we, as professors, as faculty members, as leaders who are stewarding their lives, not only their academic journeys, being there for them? For example, immigration issues that often affect them, they affect households, they affect close relatives. Are we intentional enough to be aware of that and allowing that to dictate and help us navigate the space, navigate the academic space within the classroom? Let's talk about the curricular format. More often than not, institutions are are based on a TUG, a traditional undergraduate format, 
But as we look at the data, as we look at the trends, we also see this growing population of the post-traditional undergraduate students whom communities of colors have lots of those identifiers. Often they work, often they have families or responsibilities. Often they are older because they're pursuing their academic journeys later on in life for various reasons. So if that is the case, are we being intentional in providing the kind of format that is conducive to their achievement, to their success? And of course, we, we talk a lot about when we, when we talk about representation, there are, there's so many things for that. And I just talked about my own experience, how about the impact of seeing this man, this Latino professor and, and his own experience resonating with mine and that nurturing a sense of, I can also do this. So representation matters significantly, but not only just in the classroom or in the person, but also curricularly. When we talk about the academic resources that we use, am I seeing myself? And throughout most of my college experience, I did not see myself in the books that we use, in the authors that we use, in the articles, not even in the perspectives that they provided. So then it added this added layer of learning, right, to this learning curve that I needed to take on in addition. Yeah, the added layer of learning and also the added layer of things that hinder learning, which is if I don't see myself, do I really belong here? And the, those two things, just those two forces working against each other. You know, you were talking about cultural humility and, and the, the curriculum. Some of us aren't going to, I mean, all of us, <laughs> all of us are going to be in positions of not being able to understand the cultures to the degree we wish we could and, and, and would of the learners we facilitate. So I love the examples that come from people like Kimberly N. Russell. She teaches at Rutgers and she has an example where she she creates and facilitates a opportunity for people to bring their own sense of identities in through something that kind of sounds silly. I mean, maybe to some people, but I just I find it delightful. So she she has them create a beast profile because they have to come in and do all this memorization. You have to memorize all these these creepy crawly creatures. That's my very technical term for it. And instead of coming in and, and memorizing all this stuff, or I should say, in addition to they get to create a beast profile. And that beast profile can be based on, I, I always laugh because the example I use is I would definitely pick a grasshopper and I would definitely pick fear because I am terrified of grasshoppers. I mean, Norlin, it's, it's bad. It's bad. And so the other two elements that people can base their beast profile on is either fascination. It might be a creature that they're particularly interested in and curious about, or it could be disgust. And you might recognize these three things, whether it's fear, fascination, or disgust, those are all emotions. And there's so much literature and, and research around the connection between learning and emotion. So she's an example who comes up a lot for me. And I do just want to mention that I was able to learn about her from the book called The Spark of Learning. And that's by Sarah Rose Kavanagh. So that's just one example. And I'll, I'll give one last one from my own teaching. I would teach a consumer behavior class. And one of the things that was talked about there is the idea of having a target market. And then there's these 
really sort of overgeneralized way we sometimes market to people, men versus women, and then you can see the problems they're in even just in today's conversation or the, the different kind of identifying things that we just talked about. If we try to market to Hispanics, we already can see the problems there. So in that class, they talk about micro markets that are very niche and but but very powerful if you're actually able to tap into them. So rather than me trying to pretend the examples that were in the textbook would just be ones I couldn't relate to at all. I remember something had to do with skateboarding and I was like, yeah, I gave up skateboarding when I fell down the hill. I was about seven. I have a scar still, by the way, from that particular accident. So inviting them to do that, and I have such a distinct memory of three students that got together for their group project because they all wanted to share that, yes, they feel like other people think that they look the same and they make assumptions about them, that they must all be the same. So their their project was all around foods from their culture and to help because we celebrated at the end of that semester. So they all wanted to say like different foods, different music, different cultural icons and all this stuff, but do it in a fun, playful way. But I could never have done that to the extent that they brought it in. So having these mechanisms by which we're able to express our cultural humility and still allow them to bring their identities, bring their cultures into the classroom. And I know that you were talking about that earlier in terms of the curriculum. Am I seeing myself? And just, just, I think we just have to lean into that humility because other, otherwise we'll just say it's too hard. It's too hard. I'm not going to be able to do this. So what are the little ways that we can help facilitate that and be humble and let, let people bring these into the learning communities that we're a part of? Absolutely. And that is so important, Bonnie, I think, because we need to acknowledge that in the process of imparting knowledge, we're also stewarding their identity development process. We have them for so long, for four years, let's say, or more, depending on their track. And as they do this, as they engage academically, they're also internally engaging their own identity. And that shapes and forms who they are. So the question that I often have for institutions, all institutions, whether that be higher ed institutions, nonprofit institutions, religious institutions, are we being intentional about thinking how we are nurturing their sense of identity and belonging? And it's such a critical question that I think does not receive enough airtime. Mm, thank you so much. Well, this is about to be the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. But before we get there, I do want to say a word of thanks to today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. Most of us can relate to feeling overwhelmed by email, and this is a service that I have used for many years now and, and continue to pay for uh, myself. And what it does is it's got artificial intelligence that's really, really smart about which emails deserve our attention right now and which could be best read later on. In fact, they have a folder that gets created when you set it up that's called saying later, as in this could be stuff I could read later or saying newsletters. It'll group together all of our newsletters and put them in an in inbox. It's very easy to get started with. 
and it's very seamless. It's it's hardly ever puts things in the wrong bucket, but if it ever does, it's just click and drag and move it to where you want that to show up in the future, and it learns seamlessly. And the other thing is, it's easy to get started with, but there's other features like if I want to send an email out and I want to be sure and hear back from someone and be alerted if I haven't heard back yet, I can email a blind carbon copy, a special email box for three days later if I haven't heard back or seven days later, or just remind me of this on Monday morning or what have you. So it's a wonderful service. I thank them so much for their support. And if you'd like to learn more about SaneBox and also get a free trial and a $25 credit, you can head on over to SaneBox.com slash T-I-H-E. Again, that URL is SaneBox.com slash T-I-H-E. And SaneBox, thank you for supporting teaching in higher ed and also my email management because you make my life so much better on a daily basis. And now we get to come back and head on over to the recommendations segment. And I just have a quick one to share and then I'll get to pass it over to Norlin. The one I'd like to share is a gender bias calculator. It's a calculator where you can put in text and it was derived from some prior versions of it, looking at gender biases that show up in recommendation letters. And it was something that as soon as I saw it, I got to thinking, oh boy, I probably need to run some of my recommendations letters through because biases, we all have them. First step is becoming aware of them. And I thought, oh gosh, how much do you want to bet that I probably have some of that inadvertent there that I just don't realize is there. So the blog post, and it's also um, the link I'm going to send you over to has a, a scientific paper that explains why this kind of gender bias is so important for us to consider. And it also is a has some privacy protections in there so that um, nothing stays in your browser, nothing goes over to their servers or whatever. So I'd encourage people to head on over to the gender bias calculator and consider pasting some of your text in there, whether that be on recommendation letters or other things that you do in your writing and just identify if you are having any sort of gender bias show up in your writing in that way. So that's my recommendation for today. And now I'm going to pass it over to Norlin. I believe he has a a few to recommend for us today. Yes. Yes, Bonnie. And talking about biases, there is this book that really has helped me as an academic think about the biases that I might have. It's by Boaventura de Sosa Santos. It's called The End of the Cognitive Empire, The Coming of Age of Epistemologies of the South. And this book did two things for me. One, it helped me identify myself and the way that I historically have thought and the way that my people think and affirms it. These are the epistemologies of the South. Secondly, it also helped me just think about the general field of higher ed and how we could be doing a better job at being introduced to different ways of thinking because our students are coming from these various backgrounds. And therefore, it allows us or gives us some tools to think intentionally, proactively about how we can incorporate different ways of thinking and different resources. The second book that I am going to recommend is a book by Orlando Crespo, coming from a faith-based background, from a family who nurtured my faith really intentionally. His book, Being Latino in Christ, Finding Wholeness in Your Ethnic Identity merges the faith element with my ethnic identity. And it provided some really 
concrete tools on how to identify where I am in this journey. There's this model that he provides that assesses ethnic awareness versus assimilation. And it was a concrete way for me to assess where am I in this journey of my ethnic identity development along with my faith, because the book also incorporates that and it affirms it. And for my Latinas out there listening, I read this book and I, th- and I thought to myself, can I start reading this book to my five-year-old already? And it is called Hermanas, Deepening Our Identity and Growing Our Influence. Three Latina scholars, authors, providing in- insights through the lens of female biblical characters on leadership. And they merge that with their own experiences, and they talk about this process of coming to grips and leaning into their female ethnic identities, in addition to also leaning into the possibility of leading and the affirmation that they too can be leaders, that they too have exercised leadership, just like these women who are often overlooked in the Bible. Norlin, thank you so much for today's conversation and for yesterday's conversation and for tomorrow's conversation. I'm so glad to be in community with you and and getting to do what I consider to be such important work together. I'm I'm grateful for every opportunity to collaborate, including this one. And I'm excited for this episode to air and for people to get to learn more about you and um, also just to continue our work together. Thank you, Bonnie. I ditto. The feeling is mutual, and I so appreciate the conversations. I so appreciate the partnership and just being, like you said, in community together. We have this concept, you know, theologically in Spanish, en conjunto, in community, together. Thanks once again to my friend and colleague, Norlin Hernandez, for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you've been listening for a while to the show and have yet to rate or review the podcast on whatever it is you use to listen to it, I'd much appreciate it as it does help people find out about the show. And if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly update from Teaching in Higher Ed, you'll automatically get the show notes from the most recent episode along with the recommendations, some bonus recommendations that don't show up on the show, some quotable words and other weekly email update goodness. So head on over to teachinginhigherred.com slash subscribe and you can join that weekly update. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.